At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why Midway USA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. This is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast, Series 1, Episode 16, Salmon and Steelhead. I'd never given much thought to fishing for salmon. I always knew about them from nature shows and books, and it wasn't until I worked in a fly shop that I'd given them any fishing interest. An employee named Nick asked if I wanted to go salmon fishing with him next weekend, and I told him he was crazy. It's too far. How are we going to get to Alaska? He said it was a half-day's drive, We'd be back by Monday. He wasn't kidding, as he'd recently driven me to the Latorte in Pennsylvania just over an hour and a half. That drive usually takes me a little over two hours. Later that year, a bunch of the guys from the shop were making a road trip to the Salmon River in New York, the first time I'd ever heard of the Salmon River. I wasn't able to go as my brother was getting married that weekend. They came back with crazy stories. A few months later, I saw pictures of a giant brown trout from Oak Orchard, New York, and I looked up the photo's owner and started conversations with him online. He suggested flies for me, including the sucker spawn, and gave me some background information about fishing for Lake Run salmon and steelhead in New York. By next fall, Tom and I drove up to New York, to the Salmon River. That's a story in itself, as is each time we have drove up there, something crazy happens. 
But it was that trip that I saw my first salmon, my first monster brown trout, and my first steelhead. I came back and started to take mental notes of what I saw and how my previous knowledge of salmon would relate to fishing for them. This is what I have written down, jotted down, and kept in the back of my head for the past 10 years. Let's start off with the term anadromous. Anadromous is a fish that lives in the ocean, mostly in breeds in fresh water. It's a type of migratory fish. It goes from point A to point B. There are some fish that go from saltwater to freshwater. There's some that go from freshwater to saltwater. And then there's some that just migrate all over the ocean. You have the Sargassum Sea where the eels breed, and then they come back to the rivers in freshwater. You have what we're going to talk about now. There's bull sharks that go into freshwater from salt. Different types of anadromous fish. Striped bass we've talked about before, shad herring. We're going to talk about salmon, steelhead, and trout today. Salmon are born in fresh water. The eggs hatch to fry, and the fry spend a while in the stream where they eat bugs and such until they mature and head to open water. In open water, the salmon are exposed to more protein in the form of fish and crustaceans, which is why their flesh is pink. They're taking on the keratins and different pigments of the shrimp and mollusks and things like krill that they're eating, and that makes their flesh pink. After several years in the ocean, let's see, four to six, their bodies start to morph, and instincts send them to the mouth of the water where they were born. The salmon hold or stage in this estuary or bay-like area as their bodies change. Their physical characteristics like skin color change. Some develop humps, their jaws morph, and huge teeth protrude from their mouths. The fish have only one thing on their mind, and that is to swim upstream and mate. The salmon come in stages or waves. They wait for the proper river temperatures and levels. Heavy rains often trigger them to run. Running in stages prevents population decimations. If all the fish came in at once and something happened and wiped out their eggs, there would be no fish of that cohort to reproduce. Cohort being a group of organisms of the same age and same species living together at the same place at the same time. They come up the river in groups or these stages. Some fish are ready to go up sooner than others. Some wait for ideal conditions. Passing on their genetic information is the key. That's the only thing they are trying to do. But soon they will be dead. Though some of them are immature fish, known as jacks, and they have had a biological timer that has gone wrong and they have joined in the migration. They will return to the sea if they survive the trip. The fish are now in fresh water. Their bodies have changed to allow fresh water to wash over them and into their body. Normally, this would kill the fish, but they have adapted to this change. They've experienced it before. The fish swim upstream. They pass a myriad of obstacles from the sharks, seals, and whales, and humans at the mouth of the stream, such as physical barriers of log jams, waterfalls, bears, fast-moving water, deep water, muddy water where they can't see, and other man-made structures. The fish can go hundreds of miles to their spawning grounds. It all depends on the river. Some will navigate up side channels, and some will continue to where they were born. The fish do not eat at this stage. Their body metamorphosis has changed their insides. Their digestive tracts have atrophied. They can't eat anything. They're using stored fat, glycogen from the previous podcast, as fuel. The females are looking for a specific type of gravel, and the males are looking for females. The females use their tails to dig a red or nest. She kicks up detritus, gravel, and other fish eggs. She moves rocks and debris out of the way, and the males line up behind her. The males are crazy with testosterone, and they use those gnarly teeth to fight each other and hold on to the females. As soon as she lays her eggs, the males rush in to fertilize them. 
This is external fertilization. It's out in the open, otherwise known as our selection. Thousands of eggs are spilled out into the nest, and the ones that manage to settle to the bottom in the right location get fertilized with the sperm before it too is washed downstream. The eggs now have settled into the nooks, crevices, and textures of the riverbed. They are left to their own. The parents won't be around to watch their young hatch. They will never see the next generation as the ones before did not seeing them grow up. Soon they will be dead. The exhausted fish will either lay more eggs for the females or fertilize again for the males. They don't stick around too long. Soon they will be dead. Their bodies are falling apart, literally rotting alive. Pieces of flesh trail off their bodies. Their fins break apart between the rays and they shred like a kite in a tree. Their color changes. Parts of their scales start to slough off. Their mouths open and close to get those final breaths of life. They are living dead. The smell of rotten fish fills the air. Their bodies litter the stream bed and the banks. Birds and mammals begin to feast on what's left of them. Eyeballs and fat deposits are the first to go. Those have the most calories. This is fall and cold winter is on its way. The consumed meat is returned to the land in the form of nitrates and animal feces. What is not eaten starts to break down. You may see maggots devour the carcasses, small white rice-like particles all over the bodies along the water. Moles and fungi break down the fish on shore. The fish in the water are broken apart by small fish, crustaceans, and insects that are consuming them. All of the biomass is returned to the water. All that biomass will stay in the stream, and when the fry hatch, it will be the basis of their food chain. The parents' flesh provided the raw ingredients for the algae, which are eaten by the insects, which are then eaten by the fry, and it goes on as it has for millions of years. The salmon that do survive, for the time being, attempt to protect their nests. Their only parental instinct is to keep things away from the nest and to protect the eggs. Crayfish, other fish, and insects. Anything that poses a threat to their progeny will be the target of those gnarly teeth. Anything that interferes with their mating will receive the wrath of those teeth. And that's why the fly fishermen go to fish for them. But more of that later. These fish don't have hands, so when something gets in their way, when something aggravates them, they can't attack with their fists like we would. They're going to use their mouths. An analogy I used earlier is if you're at a bar and all these guys are going after one woman and they're on one mission for sex and you get in there and interfere, they're going to punch you. Fish can't punch. They use their teeth. One of the fish that are present to eat salmon eggs are the steelhead. Like the salmon, the steelhead is anadromous. It is a variety of rainbow trout. Rather than spend its life in a lake or stream, these fish migrate. Born in fresh waters of the streams, they follow the same path of the salmon. Eggs hatch, fry mature, and juveniles swim to open water. It is in the ocean where their size and strength are built. Eating fish and crustaceans, their silvery bodies are packed with protein. They grow to great sizes and feel the urge to migrate as well as the salmon. They too will follow their primal urge and to this is where their natal stream is located. Those that make it into the water begin the journey upstream. Unlike the salmon, their bodies do not begin to break down. Unlike the salmon, these fish will return to the open ocean. The fish right from the ocean are shiny as a freshly minted dime. Those that have been in the water longer begin to take on the colors of that river. They turn green to blend in with the substrate. Steelhead have two things in their mind. Some are there to wait for spring to spawn, 
Some are there to eat. Some are there to put on pounds and wait out the winter in the stream, and in the spring they will spawn. The steelhead are presented with a smorgasbord of food opportunities. As the female salmon dig their nest, they dislodge insect larvae, mayfly, caddisfly, stonefly, trueflies, the dipterns, are sent floating downstream at the mercy of the current. Salmon eggs tumble downstream along the bottom. Protein-rich eggs by the thousands are there for the picking. The steelhead need the fat to sustain them in the cold waters for the next several months. Rotten chunks of salmon flesh break off from the carcass and drift down and are engulfed by the steelhead as well. It has been said that an aggressive steelhead will even ram a gravid female salmon to force her to release her eggs. Other steelhead will line up behind a female and wait for her to drop her eggs or turn up bugs and gorge on those. And this is where the fly fishing comes into focus. More on that later. In some places, these fish have been stocked. This includes the Great Lake fisheries to which I was first exposed to salmon and steelhead. The fish are raised in hatcheries and released into the rivers. From the rivers, they mature and enter the Great Lakes. The Great Lakes are surrogate for the adult, and there they mature to adulthood. They feed on forage fish and crustaceans within the lakes. In some areas, they were used to keep the control of forage fish populations down. In addition to the introduced steelhead and salmon, there are also brown trout. Like the salmon and steelhead, the browns are bred in hatcheries and released. The young mature in the stream and enter the Great Lakes. In other places, these would be called sea-run browns. They pack on the weight in the Great Lakes as they would in the ocean. At sexual maturity, they return to their natal stream. Like the salmon, they reproduce or spawn in the fall. Like the steelhead, they return to the Great Lakes after spawning. They will either winter in the rivers or return to the lakes, often to power plants where they can bathe in the warm waters over winter. Stocked fish may not be able to reproduce in their introduced waters. They sure will try. These fish will reach a hatchery upstream where the female eggs are harvested and the males are milked for their sperm. From there, the fish return to the river to continue their instinctive travel upstream. There is an article a year or so ago in one of the fly fishing magazines talking about taking the corpses of the hatchery fish and putting them in a wood chipper downstream to get their biomass back in the stream faster. These fish, like the steelhead, are also feeding. They will feed on the salmon eggs and insects floating downstream. They need to pack on the calories for winter. They need that extra energy for spawning and holding over through the winter. They are not in the same population density as the salmon. The steelhead will also eat their eggs and the eggs of any other stream-dwelling fish that happen to spawn. Some things to remember. Stocked fish are not the same as wild fish in strength or behavior. You could call them fake boobs. Sure, they're real, but they've been altered by man. They're not the same. I should probably stop there. But there's an analogy. Think about it. Stocked fish often have their adipose fins removed and lack pectoral fins. The pectoral fins were rubbed off from the fish swimming in circles around the tanks. The tanks being usually concrete, cement. That abrasiveness rubs down their pectoral fins. Most fishing for these fish is done in August to April, the colder months. Fish, the steelhead and brown trout, are cold-blooded, sear the same temperature as the water. Steelhead and browns, thus, will be more active in a little bit warmer water and very lethargic in cold. Cold water equals colder fish, and that means slow metabolism. 
They will not go out of their way to chase down food if the water is bitterly cold. If there's snow entering the stream, if there's a fresh snow runoff, and that water gets drastically reduced in temperature, those fish are going to slow down. As I've stated before, fish activity is directly related to the metabolism. They should and they will move out of their way if the amount of calories gained from the food they're consuming is greater than the amount of calories lost in the process of going after that food. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Matt Handy wrote in a Trout Unlimited article in 2000, I believe, that fishing for trout in cold water should be like throwing them the entire grocery bag. Huge morsels will entice them. Big streamer flies, big nymphs. Lots of calories. They're going to have a gain of energy from going after and eating it rather than losing energy chasing it. Fish do not want to burn those unnecessary calories. They'll hold in water that allows them to maintain their position without having to exert energy. Deeper water is slower. Structure provides breaks in the current and decreases the water's velocity. It's just like normal trout fishing. Trout are trout wherever they are. Trout in streams behave the same all around the world. Trout in lakes behave the same all around the world. Where you see female salmon, there will be trout behind it. They will blend in so you won't be able to see them. Riffles often produce more oxygen. Fish like you need oxygen when moving. Fish that are swimming upstream and chasing food and females need to breathe so they'll probably be holding in more turbulent water. If not for a long time, at least a short time to take a break and catch the breath. So how to fish for salmon, steelhead, and trout. Brown trout, that is. Bounce flies off the bottom. If the fish are holding down there and that's where the food is, that's where they will be. For salmon, they are not feeding, they are mating. They don't have hands so they can't shoo away something that is pestering them. They bite at what is pestering them. A fly swings in their face may elicit them to strike. Salmon are protecting their progeny. Anything that is a threat is going to be attacked. Anything that may be threatening their genetic information is subject to attack. Insects eat their eggs. Crustaceans take their eggs. Fish eat their eggs. Nymph patterns swung. Crayfish patterns and streamers from zonkers to egg-sucking leeches will elicit an aggressive strike. Patterns with beads or eggs on the front mimic an organism that has actually stolen an egg. Bright and gaudy patterns that are easy to see and obviously don't mimic any natural food are just something to get their attention. Bright, chartreuse, fuchsias, pinks, gold, tinsels, those are there to get their attention as something out of the corner of their eye that may be attacking their food. Based on the population density, it's often that you'll inadvertently snag a salmon. So be careful when you are releasing a salmon. There may be several hooks broken off in that fish. If you get one in your hand and that fish decides to jerk because these are big, strong fish, you are in trouble. And these fish will pick up their eggs and put them back in their nests. 
If you throw an egg pattern, they may be picking it up to put it back down. If you feel that tug, you set the hook. These fish are big and strong, like I said, and most still have a lot of fight in them. So be careful. These fish can take you downriver. They can take you away from your group. You can interact with bears, whatever. Be careful. These fish are still strong. But the dying ones that are just sitting there holding the water, breathing, catching their last breaths, may get a hook in their mouth via just them having their mouth open and the fly swinging by their open mouth and the current of the water just inadvertently setting it in that nasty rotten jaw. These rotten moldy fish can still put up a fight, though you probably don't want to see one up close. They are quite disgusting. I will have pictures of those on my website. Steelhead. In the fall, they only have one thing on their mind. If the salmon are there for sex, steelhead are there to eat. Steelhead arrive about the same time as the salmon and come up the river in stages. A variety of patterns and a variety of color sizes and fished at different depths is the key to catching steelhead. Find what they are taking and stick with it. Nymphs, leeches, streamers, etc. Fished along seams where the fish are catching their breath or holding in deep water behind boulders. Fish the structure you normally fish for trout. Cast above female salmons and allow that fly to drift and sink behind her to imitate eggs or bugs she has moved with her tail or something that is going after the eggs. You might get a male salmon back there too if he is protecting what may be going after those eggs. Strikes will be more aggressive during the warm weather as they are more active. Winter brings colder water and tailwaters offer the best option for winter steelheading. There's less ice and shelf ice in the water and constant and consistent hatches to include stoneflies, winter stoneflies specifically, are always going to be out. The fish will be holding in deeper water and will take flies that pass near them. If the fly stops, it is either snagged on the bottom or if fish has taken it. Watch your hook sets and be ready for your line to go tight. Often spawning in the spring and then returning to lakes or oceans, these steelhead will be in there all winter. There are some summer-run species of steelhead that migrate in the river in the summer and then back out before fall. The brown trout are similar to steelhead. They're there to mate. They're there to gorge on eggs. Fish in the same manner. Different fly patterns. Nymphs, leeches, streamers, sucker spawns. Often behind female salmon is where they will be located, of course, to eat their eggs. From my experience, we usually catch them inadvertently. We've never really gone out targeting big browns. I know in Oak Orchard they do, but I've always caught them as a secondary bonus. Anywhere from seven inches to ones that I thought were king salmon. That seven incher threw up about two tablespoons of salmon eggs. And of course the photo I took of everything it threw up did not come out. So uh, you just have to take my word for it. But I have pictures of it where its gut is completely full. So I've given you background information on some of the life history introduction about salmon, steelhead, brown trout. How to fish for them, when to fish for them, where to fish for them. Let's talk about gear you might need. Rods should be long. The longer the rod, the more line you can keep off of the water and prevent drag. Longer rods allow roll casting so you don't get exhausted. Roll casting will also prevent your guides from icing up in the winter. You're not stripping the line through the guides so water isn't beating up. Longer rods have more bend to them and more energy to throw line and to fight fish. Lions should have a long front belly and allow easy roll casting or overhead casting. Colors depend on you, 
Floating lines and sink tips are both important. Rio makes a variety of specialty Scandi Skagit lines. That should be Scandi and Skagit lines. Um, so take a look at their website. I'll provide some links for that. But you want to look for lines that are developed by steelhead fishermen for steelhead fishermen. Your average weight 40 floating fly line will work fine, but there are lines specifically designed for this type of fishing. Your backing should be ample in the vent your fish runs. Dacron is fine color based on your preference. Your leader should be long, tapered via machine or cut in piece by hand. Thick butt sections to turn over your flies and added weight. Fluorocarbon tippets are usually preferred. I prefer Seaguar or Berkeley Vanish. I use the perfection loop to connect the butt to the line, blood knots for section-to-section -section connections, and sometimes a tiny barrel swivel between the leader and tippet. If it's too cold out, I don't want to be tying blood knots, and I'm not a fan of surgeon knots for my leaders, as I've previously mentioned. So I will take a very tiny barrel swivel and have that separate my leader from my tippet. I use an improved clinch knot as my preferred tippet to fly knot. Triple surgeons loop sometimes if I want my fly to wobble more in the water. Weight is important to get your fly down. Split shot is the common or preferred method. If your line is not already weighted, this is the preferred method to get your line down get your fly to those fish. A variety of weights and sizes should be in your vest or gear bag or chest pack. And you should have things from BBs to 3.0. And you should feel that split shot ticking along the bottom and sending vibrations up to your line. That tells you your split shot's on the bottom and your fly should be just above the stream bed, which is where eggs will naturally be rolling along the bottom where flies that are trying to swim back down after being dislodged, and any critters that are eating salmon eggs. Salmon eggs are on the bottom of the river, so most of the life that your fly is representing is on the bottom. If you snag bottom, too often your fly line is probably too heavy. Take off some split shot, adjust it based on the speed and depth. You'll need to modify that amount and the placement depending on your location. Now there are certain laws and regulations based on your tippet length and how much weight you can and cannot use. So make sure you are well aware of your rivers, state, or commonwealth's laws and regulations. Some people use a slinky, which is a short piece of hollow parachute cord with split shot inside, and the tip of it has been melted to seal it, and there's a small snap swivel that attaches to your line. These dangle from a swivel and are less likely to get hung up on the rocks and trees and they're easily replaceable. Your reel should be large arbor to allow line to be stripped off and have it reeled back in. You need a solid drag system and something that can get wet because most often you are going to be out in nasty rainy cold weather. Strike indicators, some fish with them and of course I recommend the thingamabobber. Others rely on different colors of their line and visual twitches to indicate a strike. You might notice a lot of steelhead fishermen using a one-foot piece of fluorescent mono between the line and the leader. When that line twitches, they set the hook. Others do it just by feel. They feel that line stop, they lift the rod, and hopefully they have the hook set in a fish's jaw. Your waders should be breathable with proper layering underneath. I'll do a layering podcast coming up. 
as it's fresh in my mind because it's cold out right now. We were out fishing on the Potomac yesterday, and it's cold. Your shell, which is your raincoat, should be something that's going to keep you warm and dry all day. It should be breathable to let all that vapor from your cell respiration out. I prefer kayaking dry tops. I came up with the idea of using that after several years of fishing for a week straight in cold rain where water is coming down my neck, being blown in from my hood. And when my forearm is pointing up in the air, drifting that nymph, water comes down that cuff. Any kind of neoprene cuff with a Velcro latch will not work. Believe me, I've tried several companies and I finally did research on kayaking tops. If I can dive in the water and water won't enter my jacket, that's what I want to be wearing. I now wear a Patagonia top and I wear a Kolkatat top. You can see pictures of me wearing those on the website. The Kolkatat has a completely dry neck. No water can enter through my neck. And there, there are rubber gaskets or latex gaskets, I should say, at the wrists. Water cannot enter that jacket. The Patagonia jacket is zippered. It has a Velcro and latex cuff, and it has um, sort of an adjustable neck to keep water from coming in. Extremely important because if you're wet, that's just going to ruin your day. And I wear a down vest underneath, but that's uh, the next podcast, hopefully. My jackets are bright, so people can find me if I get hurt. There are reflectors on them, so if I'm ever out of my kayak, at night, in the dark, people can see my reflections. Pockets are good. Uh, if you want to hold your camera, extra flies, whatever you want to take with you. Me, it's normally a bag of sunflower seeds. Your boots should be sticky rubber with metal studs. Often a size or two larger to allow your feet to move and enhance circulation because you're fishing in water that is liquid snow. If you're standing still for six hours at a time, your feet are cramped. They are not getting the blood they need to stay warm. If you wear larger boots, have extra space for your toes to move around and allows your neoprene booty to have more warm air circulating it. Camp stove, another bonus. Allows you to heat up food on the riverbank to warm up your body and spirits. People used to laugh at Tom and I for bringing our camp stove and making hot chocolate, chai, tea, warming up cup of soup, Chef Boyardee, or any of the myriad of uh, freeze-dried camping foods. I prefer chili mac with beef. You make that, uh, that warm uh, meal, you don't have to walk all the way back to your car and go to a restaurant. You are ready and set and having a nice little picnic on the side of the bank. Just make sure you are not wearing gloves when you light your fire on your stove. I lost a glove that way. It went up into flames. Somehow, I put that, eBay, I put that glove on eBay just to see what would happen, and it sold for $1.75. So I'm guessing someone else had that happen, and they burnt their right handed glove and had to replace with my right hand glove because the left hand went up in its flames. All right, side note. Casting. You want to cast upstream with men's to allow your fly to sink to the proper depth before the current has time to manipulate the line and cause the drag. You want your fly to drift down that arc. Your casting is going to go from your right shoulder down to your left. And once it finishes that drift and starts to swing and pick up velocity, Lift your rod tip. That will allow that fly to swing and lift as if something is on the river bottom and swimming to the surface. A fly hatching, something escaping, whatever. You will often find the strike on that swing. 
If nothing, pick up your fly, throw it upstream, and allow it to recast. Some of the flies I prefer, well, you can go to my website, but for salmon and steelhead, egg-sucking leeches, woolly worms, sucker spawn, meth patterns, glow bug patterns, stonefly nymphs. If you ask Tom, he's only going to go out with a flashback pheasant tail nymph. People catch them off on uh, caddis emergers. Big streamers would be uh, the zonkers, egg-sucking leeches, popsicle patterns, shrimp patterns. Matsupinski has a really cool little silver minnow. Um, he had an article in Fly Fisherman about three years ago that he once told me on a stream was absolutely lethal. There's all sorts of little bait fish, helgramite patterns, crayfish patterns, and... What else am I missing? In Alaska, they use the bead with the toothpick method. I've never figured that out. That's why it's known as the Alaskan method. I have not been to Alaska before. So that pretty much sums it up. Um, except your hooks should be strong. You don't want them to bend. Make sure they're sharp. Check your leaders for abrasion. When these fish run, they're going to damage all of your equipment, including your leaders. Make sure you have a big net. The net you think is big, that's not big. This should be like the size from the cartoons when they're catching crazy people and mad dogs. It should be big enough for you to pick up a four-year-old. Big nets with long handles. And you should be wary of how to land one of these fish. If you're not landing with a net, you need to beach them, which is just walking slowly backwards. But then your fish gets on shore and starts flopping around and there's gravity affecting it so it can damage its internal organs. For more on this, you can visit uh, the website, robsnowwhite.com, 1W in Snow White. Send me an email. If you have any questions, comments, if I got anything wrong you want to fix or correct. And I will put all of this up on uh, the website and on my blog with pictures. So I thank you for tuning in to Series 1, Episode 16, Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. And be sure if you want, uh, give me a rating on iTunes.